Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 35, and my Savior will defend me. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And not only is it true, but it's reliable. It is enough. It is clear. It is binding on our lives. And so, Lord, I I pray that as we open this text before us today, that you will help us. You'll help us to know not only of your great love for us, but also of your holiness and of your judgment and how that all works together and how you will execute judgment on your enemies because you are a holy and you are a just and a good God. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word is true And that we can learn. We can learn who you are. We can discover more of the depths of Christ and the the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the, the love of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God. And all because your word is true. It's clear. It's enough. It's binding on our lives. So Lord, take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and by your spirit, open our eyes that we may see great and wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. It says this, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who divides evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witness, rise up, they ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But as my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me, wretches, whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. 
How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye, who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. The Psalms are a feast for worship music. Some of our choruses are simply the words of a psalm put to music. Many of the psalm, many of the hymns that we sing today are based on the psalms. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World by paraphrasing Psalm 98. Originally, he wrote this, this song to be about Christ's second coming, but we use it to celebrate his first coming at Christmas. But we don't have many songs with the words of Psalm 35. That's because Psalm 35 is one of a, of a group of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. And this is an unusual name, but it's easy to understand what you, once you know the, what the word imprecation means means and it means a curse in an imprecatory psalm the author usually david curses his enemies there are at least nine of these imprecatory psalms in the psalter and they are mostly written by david in fact in seminary we had to when i took a class on the psalms we had to write uh, one of the discussion board posts is we had to explain why are these psalms these imprecatory psalms why are they in the bible and you know what how do we deal with that as christians because today christians sometimes have trouble with these psalms because to them it seems to go against jesus teaching jesus said this in luke 6 27 through 29 love your enemies do good to those who hates you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And on the cross, Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Psalm 35, verses 5, 6, and 8 say this, seemingly the opposite of what Jesus says. They say this, let, let them be like chaff before the wind. Let their way be dark. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And to make it even more puzzling, David praises God as he curses his enemies. In fact, the three main sections of the of Psalm 35, which we read, just read, 
each end with a word of praise in verse 10, 18, 27, and through 28. And so we need to ask the question and we need to answer it very clearly. How can we as Christians read Psalm 35, an imprecatory psalm? And we need to think about these imprecatory psalms in general, and we're going to do so before we before we get and dive into Psalm 35. And then we're going to look specifically about David says in this psalm. So first we're going to look about David's words of judgment in the psalms, and we're going to consider the question, how should we understand the hard words of judgment in Psalm 35 and others like it? And there are a lot of ways to approach this wrongly, and we're going to talk about those now. We should start by ruling out some of the wrong answers. Some people write off Psalm 35 and other psalms like it as vindictive, and David's out for revenge. They suggest that David asked God to destroy his enemies because he was human, and this was a character flaw. After all, they reason if David had been a better man, he would not have prayed this way. And this isn't going to work. This doesn't work, I should say, for three reasons. First, it doesn't square with what we know of David. He wasn't a bitter man. He wasn't out for revenge. He wasn't vindictive. Time and time again, we see David sparing Saul's life, even though Saul was trying to kill him. In 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, 2 Samuel 1. And then second, David never asked to take vengeance himself on his enemies. He asked the Lord God to be his avenger. This is important because God is a righteous judge. He will always act in accordance with his revealed will. And furthermore, as a righteous judge, God never condemns the innocent. David is not praying with a bitter spirit. He is asking God for justice. This is a big difference between vindiction and vindictiveness. Third, David was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This means that Psalm 35 is not just David's words and his personal feelings and take about the situation. These are the very words of God. And the bottom line is that we cannot write off these imprecatory psalms as David's personal character flaw. And another, another reason that people struggle with this um, and another wrong answer about this, the reason that they struggle with this is that many, many people think that the Old Testament is full of judgment while the New Testament is full of forgiveness and grace. And they reason that since David was writing before the time of Christ, uh, we should never expect him to be a forgiving man. And we, they, they ask the question, how could he have known any better? Now, the New Testament does reveal the grace of God more fully to us in Christ. That's true. But we cannot set the Old Testament against the New Testament. The whole Bible is inspired by God from beginning to end. And furthermore, it's a mistake to think that the Old Testament only speaks of judgment and not of grace. When Jesus taught the second great commandment, he didn't say something new. He quoted what Moses had said in Leviticus 19.18, which says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Deuteronomy 32.35 commands us not to take revenge. 
Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. God sent the prophet Jonah to the Assyrians, his enemies, so they could repent of, from being destroyed. The Old Testament teaches the grace and mercy of God in powerful and beautiful ways. And yet it's also a mistake to think that the New Testament teaches grace but not judgment. John the Baptist said that Christ would burn the wicked like chaff with unquenchable fire in Matthew 3.12. Jesus said that those who did not receive him will be thrown in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 8.12 and Matthew 22.13. The apostle Peter says that false teachers are cursed and condemned to utter darkness in 2 Peter 2.14 and 2 Peter 2.17. And in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John says that God's people will rejoice when God judges this present evil world in Revelation 19, 1-3, which says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. These are some of the last words in the New Testament. God's people are not embarrassed by his judgment on this wicked world. They worship God for eternal fire and his vengeance. God would be less glorious. He would be less great, less good, less than God if he allowed evil to continue without destroying the wicked. How could this be? We understand how this works in our own world today. If a judge in your city did not convict and even sentence criminals, but sent them back to the street, we would vote them out of office as soon as we could. A good judge clears the innocent and condemns the guilty. God is a good judge. We, we, should we expect less of him than a judge in our courtrooms? And we cannot write off the imprecatory Psalms by saying that the Old Testament is full of judgment while the New Testament is full of grace. That both the Old and the New Testaments are not set against each other. God's grace and judgment run side by side from Genesis through Revelation. So what should we think? Well, as Christians... What should we make of Psalm 35 and other psalms where David calls for judgment on his enemies? Aren't we supposed to pray of this way ourselves? And the most important thing to notice is that David is not a, like, is not a private citizen like you and I are. He is the king of Israel, and this really matters. As a king, he represents something more than himself. He represents peace and stability for the nation through his Leadership. If someone were to kill me, for example, it would affect my family, my friends, those who know me at church, and those who know me online. But this is a relatively, you know, small group of people. But if someone were to kill the President of the United States, that would destabilize the whole country, perhaps even the world. And that is why the Secret Service has such an important job. In the same way, the people who plotted against King David threatened the whole country. For the sake of the nation, he could not ignore someone who wanted to overthrow the government. And David's enemies were also hurting innocent people. David mentions the poor and the needy were being robbed in verse 10 of Psalm 35. And in verse 20, that the quiet people of the land were suffering. 
And it's one thing for you and me to forgive somebody who hurts. That's what Jesus meant when he, in essence, said, turn the other cheek. But if you are, but if you're the king, you can't turn the other cheek when people are attacked. God has placed kings in authority to maintain order in society, Paul says in Romans 13, 3 through 4. And so King David was responsible to provide law and justice, peace and security for the citizens of his kingdom. He could not turn a blind eye to evil. And as the king of Israel, David had also been chosen by God to be a servant of the Lord. The prophet Samuel had anointed David. Everyone knew that God had chosen him to lead. Second Samuel 5, 1 through 2 tells us this. And so when somebody attacked David, he was actually attacking God and fighting against the will of God. And when God rescued David, he would bring glory to his own name. And this is why David says in Psalm 35, 27, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say, Evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. You see, if God did not defend his servant David, then God's name would be tarnished. And so in a profound sense, David was motivated by the glory of God. And as a final point to understand the curses in this imprecatory psalm, remember also that David was a prophet and a model for the Messiah, the son of David. The rejection David experienced points forward to Christ's rejection. In fact, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 35, 19 to explain why many of the Jews hated him. And as he prepares his disciples to face persecution, Jesus says this in John 15, 20 and 23, uh, through 25 of John 15. Remember the word I say to you, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Whoever hates, my, hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me, both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. And so the rejection David experienced in Psalm 35 was fulfilled when Jesus hated and rejected uh, by his own people. The judgment David calls for in this psalm points forward to the judgment that is waiting for everyone who rejects Christ. God is patient, he opens his arms, and he welcomes sinners. But there comes a time when he condemns the enemies of Christ who will not repent. And with that in mind, we're ready to hear David's words in Psalm 35. David's friends turned on him and they wanted him dead. And we can identify with this sense of betrayal uh, that he felt. And one of the most painful things that we could ever experience in this life is when someone we love or trust turns against us. The wounds last and many people carry them to the grave. David is facing this kind of pain and this kind of betrayal in Psalm 35. His enemies were people with whom he was once close. He fasted when they were sick, but they paid him back with hatred. They hid nets to trip up his feet, working in the shadows, plotting in secret. They were malicious witnesses, to use Psalm 3511's language, who tried to confuse him with their questions. They gathered like wolves and kicked him when he was down. He thought they were friends, but they turned against him. And since David was God's king, this was about more than just him. David's call on, on God to save him and avenge him. 
And the first three verses set the stage with an urgent call to action. Psalm 35, 1-3 says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight with me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuer. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So David gives two pictures of what God wants to do in this situation. First, he wants God to defend him as a lawyer. The word contend in verse 1 is a legal word that suggests a defense lawyer arguing for his client. David is pleading his case in the courtroom of law. And second, David calls God to defend him as a soldier. He calls on God to fight for him. The buckler in verse 2 was a larger rectangular shield that covered the whole body. And so the shield and the buckler are for defense, while the spear and the javelin are for offense in verses 2 through 3. And above the noise of the battle, he longed to hear God say, I am your salvation, as it says in verse 3. And after this introduction, the first section in verses 4 through 10 continued the, con, continues the picture of this battle. And the second section in verses 11 through 18, they pick up the, the picture of the courtroom again. And in the third section, the enemies seem to be celebrating already because they have already won in verses 19 through 28. And these sections each contain a prayer, a complaint, and a promise. And so in the first section, David calls on God to fight for him. This is his prayer in verses 4 through 6 in Psalm 35, which said, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their, dark be, uh, let, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. And so David's enemies were trying to kill him, even though he was the anointed king of God. They seek my life, he says in verse 4. And now David calls down four curses or imprecations on them that represent complete defeat. The shame, the dishonor, the turning back, the disappointment on verse 4 represent defeat in battle. If an army is turned back, it does not achieve its objective. And when Hitler's armies were turned back at the edge of Moscow, it was the turning point of World War II. And as they retreat, David also asked God to chase them as an avenging angel. David mentions the angel of the Lord in the previous psalm in Psalm 34, verse 7. And again, twice in these verses. And it's worth noticing uh, that these are the only references to the angel of the Lord in all the Psalms. And who is this angel of the Lord? He appears at various times in the Old Testament as a sp special protector of the people of God. We should not think of the angel of the Lord as an ordinary angel because at various times the angel of the Lord seems to be none other than God himself. And for instance, when Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, he described the the God of his fathers as the angel who has redeemed us or redeemed me from all evil. In Genesis 45, 15 through 16, and when Israel crossed the Red Sea, Moses said that the Lord was in the cloud and then said it was the angel of God in Exodus 13, 21 and 14, 19. And there's many references like this that have led many Bible teachers and theologians to think that the the angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, appearing and working before his incarnation. And if this is true, and I believe that it is, then David calls on Christ to curse his enemies and drive them like chaff into the wilderness. 
And in fact, the same Jesus who is our shepherd and our savior is also the Messiah of Psalm 2 who breaks his enemies with a rod of iron. And David claims that his innocence in verse 7 and then calls down three more curses on his enemies in verse 8. These curses do not embarrass him in the least. In fact, he promises to praise God when he carries out this judgment. Psalm 35, 9 through 10 says, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. You see, if you have a rose-tinted Pollyanna view of God, like a, like a nice white-haired grandfather in heaven, you're going to be shocked to hear David praise God for sending destruction. But we need to understand that this is not indiscriminate anger. The people God destroys were robbing the poor. David was the king. He was responsible for the safety of the, the people. These enemies were trying to kill him and were terrorizing villages. Do we want to stop their attacks? Of course. But if they will not stop and they continue their violence, there comes a point when we will praise God for laying them low. And so when David says he rejoices in God's judgment on these enemies, it doesn't say what else he might be feeling. And when the police catch a criminal, you might feel sorry for the offender, even though you're glad he's off the street. We can praise God for judging an evil person while we're grieved by the sin that controlled him, dragged him down, and destroyed him. It's possible to rejoice and to weep over the same event. Now in the second section, David returns to the courtroom in Psalm 35, 11, saying, Malicious witnesses rise up. They, they ask me of things I do not know. In the courtroom dramas that we've watched, we have seen what a good lawyer can do to people on the stand. Even if they are honest and innocent, he can trip them up. And if other witnesses have already lied to, uh, about them on the stand, the lawyer can eat them alive. And this seems to be what's happening to David. <coughs> and in verses 12 to 16, it was especially painful because the false witnesses used to be his friends. He fasted, he prayed for them when they're sick. They turned against him when he was stumbled. And maybe they were simply using him because he was king. He had a position, he had influence. And when it seemed like he was losing power, they turned against him to getting good with the new administration. But David knew that God would rescue him and, the, and he promises to praise God when he does. In the final section of Psalm 35, David asked God to vindicate him. His enemies are gloating over his downfall, and it's hard enough to go through betrayal. But when people laugh about your pain, it's even worse. Psalm 35, 19 says, Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongly my foes, and let not those wink the eye, who hate with me without cause. And now David uses the word rejoice in the same sense of gloating three times in these last verses, in verse 19, 24, and 26. And the worst outcome would be for things to turn out well for the bad guys, but the wicked people who are taking advantage of the people are quiet in the land in verse 20. Would God allow this injustice to stand? No, when God saves his, his king, all the people will rejoice. Psalm 35, 27 through 28 says this, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of a servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. 
Now the good people in Israel were loyal to David. They rejoiced when God rescued him. And all Israel knew that God had chosen David and the prophet Samuel had anointed him to be king. I mean, God saved the king. He he brought blessing to the nation. The faithful in the land praised God for his faithfulness to his servant. And in the same way, as believers, we rejoice at the faithfulness in saving our Lord Jesus. He is the great son of David and ultimately this psalm is about him and the opposition that he endured. The leaders of Israel were thrilled when they killed him at the, on the cross. They had their, their heart's desire, but God raised him from the dead and rescued him. And now Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for God to place all his enemies beneath his feet, Psalm 110.1 says. And Christ's enemies still hate him today. Uh, We wish that they would put down their swords, they would stop their lives, and they would worship the Lord, but they will not. And so there is nothing left for them but the judgment that God has warned us about in both testaments, and that is that there is a place, that a real place of unending, unrelenting, conscious punishment in hell. And I hope today that you are not destined to hell. I hope that you're that you place your hope and your faith and your confidence and that you repent put your that you repent and put your faith in Christ alone. I hope your heart sings because God has rescued and honored Jesus Christ. I hope you shout for joy because God has given him the name that is above every name. And as it turns out Isaac Watts wrote two hymns based on Psalm 35. One of them includes these verses. They love the road that leads to hell, then let the rebels die, and whose malice is implacable against the Lord on high. But if thou hast a, a chosen few among the impious race, divide them from the bloody crew by thy surprising grace. And then I will raise my tuneful voice to make thy wonders known. In their salvation I'll rejoice and bless thee for my own. You know, this is, this is a tough sermon to hear. It's a tough study. It's a tough text to go through. As we've talked about today, though, the thing that helps us, the reason that people really struggle with the imprecatory Psalms and is because today we have a whole entire movement that is all about, that focuses on me. It focuses on my happiness, on my joy, where I am at the center, I being the most important thing other than God. This self-help, this, this movement that, that is based on my sufficiency. I am sufficient in and of myself. But that is the opposite of what we encounter in the word of the Lord. It is not us that is at the center of the Bible story. It is Jesus Christ. And at the heart, as we talked about today, of Psalm 35 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John 19.30, we discover that out of Jesus' own mouth, he says one of the last seven words that he ever uttered, it is finished. And in that moment, the holiness of God and the love of God met in, in the death of Jesus Christ. It's because of the holiness of God that, that our sin can be now through the blood of Christ forgiven. The wrath of God that once burned against sinners is now forever and finally satisfied because of Christ. That is good news. 
that the judgment of God that burned against sinners, the, the very reason why they had to have sacrifices and all of these things, was because sin displeased God. And if we're honest, the real reason that many Christians have problems with the imprecatory Psalms is not only do they have a deficient and even unbiblical understanding of the attributes of God, but we have often a deficient and, and poor understanding of sin itself. We would rather minimize our sin. We would rather shift the blame for our sin than to repent of it and to put our faith and trust in Christ. Even as Christians, we do that. We think that we, because we're saved, we can just live how we want to live. And Romans 6 tells us very clearly, may it never be. And it goes on to tell us very clearly about our the responsibilities and the privileges that are ours in union with Christ. <clears throat> and rather than cheapening the grace of God, Paul exalts in the God of grace who has saved us as his children. If you are a child of God, if you are united to Christ by faith, you are to put your sin, in fact, Romans 6.11 says that you are to reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Read Romans 8 again and again and again until you drill it in your mind that the Holy Spirit is aiming to help you to put your sin to death because you are in union with him. You are united to Christ by faith in his name. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8.1 that uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why John says that even those of us in Christ can be uh, deceived if we think that we haven't sinned. In 1 John 1, in 1 John 1.9, he tells us that uh, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then he goes on in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, and tells us about Christ our advocates. And so we absolutely need the holiness and the love of God and the judgment of God. We need to have a well-rounded view of God as described in the word of God. And since, as we talked about here today in this study, this text, these imprecatory psalms challenge us they cause us to ask these kinds of questions because we too often, as we too often say, like John does in 1 John 4, that God is love. And by that, we don't mean that God is love. We mean that God is only love. And God is holy. He is just. He is good. He is merciful. He, he will... He is faithful. He will act in accordance with his will. Uh, Titus 1-2 tells us that we serve a God who never lies. That, that means that God will always act in accordance with his revealed will. That as defined and described in and taught from his word. That means that we can know and we can trust God and we can take his promises to the bank because God is always going to act consistently uh, based on his character as he's revealed his character in the word of God. And so that means supremely a lot of things that if we don't understand the holiness and the love of God and the judgment of God, we're going to struggle uh, with our view of God. But if we get this these things right and solid, 
what it is actually going to do is it's going to increase our hope. It's going to increase our joy, which is going to increase our worship, which is going to increase our adoration for, for the grace of God, the majesty of God, and the glory of God. You see, the re- and, and at the root of all this, Paul tells us that in Romans 1, that, 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 that God is to be worshipped. He is the creator. We are, we are the creature. God is deserving of all glory and honor and praise. And this is why even after in the first three chapters in, in, verses, in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, and then in Romans 4 through 5, he talks about justification. And in, in Romans uh, 6 through 8, he talks about uh, our sanctification and growing in grace and uh, finally becoming totally like our Lord. And, and then, you know, the sovereignty of God in chapters 9 and 10 of uh, 9 and 11 in Romans. And then at the very end of this long section and explaining these things in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he, he concludes by praising God. What uh, by worshiping the Lord? It's like he has a moment, and he's just worshiping the Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You see, we at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if our theology does not lead us to worship, it does not honor God as He has revealed in the Word. What 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 this does is it helps us to honor God. This text like this, Psalm 35, helps us to do is it helps us not to minimize our sin, not to minimize uh, or to only focus on the love of God to the exclusion of the holiness of God, or even to minimize the justice of God, but rather it challenges us to have a fully orbed view of God as holy, just, perfect, good, faithful, true. And what this does is it is it helps us to praise God, praise God for that he is at work. He is executing judgment on those who reject him, even though at the same time, God desires in in 2 Peter 3 that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. And yet he knows in in the hand that that guides providence, uh, God knows that some people will reject him. But he also knows those who are his own. And so God is sovereign from beginning to end. All of history is not moving willy-nilly towards no end. It is moving towards the end for which God has declared and what God has decreed according to his word because God is faithful to his word. Titus 1-2 says that we have a God who never lies. And that means, friends, that we can take God at his word. God can be believed. God can be trusted. 2 Corinthians 1-20 tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so we can take the word of God to the bank. We can trust God. We can believe God. We can believe his faithfulness, his love, his justice, his holiness. We can believe and have a biblical view of God. And what this will do is it will lead us to worship the Lord to lift up his name in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our fears and anxiety and the stuff of life. (coughs) What this does is it helps us to lift up our hands and to lift up our hearts and in praise of God. And what this should do, just to end this, 
end our time together, Psalm 35, 27 through 28 says this, Let those who delight in my righteous shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant, and then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. And that, friends, is the heart that understands the love of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. And may that be you and me as well. May our lips tell of the righteousness of God, of the goodness of God, of the faithfulness of God. And may his praise ever be on our lips. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it teaches us the character of God, the attributes of God. We are not left willy-nilly out in the cold to, to, to not be informed and instructed and equipped and comforted and convicted even about our sin, about the righteousness of Christ, about the glory of God and the sovereign power of God. We are not left uh, without... Uh, information in your word instruction in your word about the hand of providence that is at work judging your enemies and upholding the righteous who call on your name who delight in you so lord help us help us in the midst of your our troubles in the midst of our fears in the midst of our anxieties in the midst of our doubts help us to take texts like this home to our hearts and may we do as 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, May we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting our cares and our anxieties on him who cares for us. So we thank you, Lord, for our time in your word today and pray that you would use it to implant these words deep into our hearts. Help us not only to search the word and to be Bereans, but to do as the Thessalonians did and to receive the word with gladness and joy. So, Lord, I pray that you would use these words as people search your word, as they seek uh, for truth. May they not only search it, Lord, and search the text to make sure that these things are biblically and faithful and true to the scriptures, to Psalm 35 and to the whole Bible, but also, Lord, may, may once they have done that and they have seen that it's true, may they not reject it, but may they receive it as the Thessalonians did in 1 Thessalonians 2, with joy and gladness as the word of God. And so we thank you, Lord, that you use teachers to teach us from your word, to instruct us, but help us also not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So plant your word deep in our hearts and help us to walk by faith in the hope and the promise of a God who never lies, who is faithful, who is true, who is steadfast, and who is immovable, and who through uh, the providence of God is at work. Uh, you are at work, Lord, in our lives. And so, Lord, may the response of our hearts to this be one of worship and adoration May it be one of joy and confidence and faith in the God who has declared and who is at work in our lives through uh, the, the, the providence of God and through the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.